Today on the Packet Pushers Priority Queue, network automation tooling you can use today with the equipment you already have and which costs you nothing. Our guest today is Kirk Byers, creator of the NetMeco library for Python. Kirk works with the Napalm Python library as well, and we will discuss both of these tools today. And if you look at Kirk's LinkedIn page, he is all about network automation and teaching it to others. And I can recommend his Python for Network Engineers free and paid courses if you have such an opportunity to partake in them. So, Kirk, welcome to the show. And uh, let's jump right in here with uh, with NetMeco. Could you? We, we talked about it in the past a little bit with uh, with Jeremy Philibin because uh, from a user perspective, he'd been uh, jumping into NetMeco, uh, using it and what he was using it for. But why don't you uh, start us at the top here? What, what is NetMeco all about? Yeah. So generally, what I'm trying to accomplish here is make legacy screen scraping easier. So we're still in the bucket, unfortunately, of interfacing to legacy devices generally through an SSH channel and trying to make that process simpler in the context of Python across, you know, a broad range, a broad range of vendors. So there's probably about 25 vendors in total that I have varying degrees of support with. So in other words, the big idea is normally as engineers, we're using the CLI manually, we'll SSH into a device. But if we want to automate that and the best interface we have to work with is SSH, we need a script that knows how to deal with an SSH channel, put uh, commands onto that channel, parse output that's coming off of that channel. And that's what NetMeco was helping us with? Yeah. So, you know, in general, I still view that screen scraping, while it stinks, it's not good compared to an API, is better than doing things manually. And there's going to be a lot of legacy devices out in the field, most you know, most notably Cisco IOS, that don't support any sort of reasonable API channel into them. So you still, I still want to have a way to automate these. And then there's a bunch of pitfalls that you run into with screen scraping because you're going across a channel that's expecting a human being to be interacting with it and it's not a human being that's interacting with it and that causes a whole slew of problems which i group in the basically why does screen scraping suck uh, bucket <laughs> um and i mean it does suck so there's no way around that but i still think automation well, is better than doing it manually can we drill into that just for yeah, a yeah. second and like so when you screen scrape you actually connect as though you're an ssh client and yeah, exactly. then uh you pull that text in to your scripts to the Python as just raw text. And then you have to parse the text to detect if it's to read the fields out, I guess, or to find the actual data. Is that the problem? Yeah, that's one of the problems. So there's really two big problems. The one is what you just mentioned, that you just get back these big blobs of text, right? And you have to do all the parsing of that text to get out whatever you want out of it. And so, you know, you could term that the... The data is coming back as unstructured data, as opposed to like an API that would give you structured data back. Now, that problem's bad, but I think it's actually the lesser of the two problems. The other problem is you actually have a communication channel that expects a person and not a programmatic channel. Hmm. And I think that's actually the bigger problem in that when you execute commands, you don't really know when you're done and you start doing all sorts of things to figure out when you're done. Like, you know, you trap on the trailing prompt, you try to do timing things. So there's that whole question of, you know, the API or the interface doesn't tell you that it's done and you have to take your best estimate, but then those things start to fail. 
So what you're saying is I, I, I do a show command. I get a bunch of text characters back, which my, which now sits in a buffer, but there's no guarantees that what comes back from the, from that text buffer is actually the same between versions or well, there's that in that it can change. Now that can happen in API two as well, but the bigger issue is like, say you do some command that prompts you for something additionally, like, so you're expecting the trailing router to come back, but then it says, Hey, I need to know more info. And so you never get that trailing router prompt. So you don't really have this good mechanism of knowing is the command done or not. And then you have to do all these games and the games really are either you're trying to match on some pattern you expect in the output or you try to delay the right amount of time. And the right amount of time is, you know, definitely a, a bunch of guesswork in it on how long you should delay for. Because <laughs> that's right. right. That behavior is just not consistent. And again, going back to uh, it's not an API that uh, is giving you back. A, you ask it a question, you get back a structured set of results in a predictable way. It's a CLI that was never intended to be this way, which is really funny because I, I was talking in an earlier show with uh, with Greg. Uh, I was remembering the good old days of uh, EMC's Ionics package, I think it is now, and how it would have basically that's what it was doing. It was SSHing into a box and running commands for you. Because uh, that's all it had to work with, uh, and, and just yeah, and there's the, the, other. I mean, there's other tools that people you know um, pay money for that. That's all they're doing in the back end is SSH because uh, it's sort of the ubiquitous channel for connecting to everything. And there's really other very ugly phenomenon you can get in the output. Like some people will try to color their terminal so it looks nice, or you know they'll try to repaint the line by putting in backspace characters, and this is fine for human beings, but it makes automation to that channel just really really ugly oh you mean uh, the actual text that you're getting back was was coded to to have backspaces and now that's a character that you wouldn't see on the screen because of you know, how it would be parsed by the uh, the screen interpreter but you do exactly. see it coming back to you as text on the way back into your buffer and your terminal that you printed out to will probably get your output munched because it sees the backspace character and then tries to understand that properly so this is sort of another reason that if you are going to do screen scraping that you're going to want to use a library because other people you know there's other screen scraping libraries all other people have done a lot of work in this area um including me on netmiko and a lot of these problems are sort of painful so that you don't really want to have to reinvent the wheel if you are in this bad bucket of screen scraping so then NetMiko is, uh, again, it's taking away the pain that I would be dealing with if I was working with expect scripts and having to parse that, uh, that output myself. NetMiko as a Python library is, well, I guess it would be a stretch to call it normalizing the data, but it's certainly you know, making the data that I get back, that text data, presentable. Yeah, it just makes everything easier. So like for getting show command output, you can sort of basically do that in three commands. And you can do that across a variety of platforms. And if you went and tried to do that yourself in Python, there's a lot of gotchas that would trip you up that you would be spending hours on to go find out on Stack Overflow. You know, like, what is this problem? Um, why is this happening? And how do I solve it? Uh, over the years, I've seen, personally, I've seen a half a dozen attempts to write a screen parser. And they all work while the one person who wrote it was there. And then they all fail within six months of that person leaving. You know, literally, you know, millions of dollars spent rolling out 
apps to screen scrape and they all reinvented that wheel. That's the thing I love about these apps is, you know, lots of people are contributing the screen for the, for the screen parsing part. So that's shared, you know, that's a shared capability. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there can be that with anything, you know, there's definitely better ways you can write your code, but you know, it still depends on if somebody stops working on it and the project goes dormant, you know, someone either has to pick it up and start writing on it. So, and then depending on how they wrote the code, um, you know, if it's really poorly written code, then it could be really hard for someone else to pick mm. it up and start working on it again. Mm. So, Kirk, I, I had pinged you about NetMiko because I saw that it uh, it had been zero dot releases for quite a while, but now it's up to one zero and, and even one one uh, as of this recording. So, w- what things are new in NetMiko that you finally just said, "Fine, we're here. It's one dot Yeah. So, I mean, the the main things that have been adding across time is so the big general issue is just trying to improve that reliability to try to not make it be dependent uh, or less dependent on some of these factors, like, for example, really slow devices. Okay, try to make it ro- more reliable so that something is, you know, if it's fairly out there as far as how slow it is to respond, so that it tries to handle that. Um, across time, I've sort of realized that, that I needed to shift to more of a pattern-based mechanism. Um, I had originally tried to do it more on a timing based, just delay the right amount. And that was just misguided on my part that trying to do things on timing based was not going to work because there's just too many problems. In, in other words, after that. X seconds, assume that uh, output is stopped, that sort of thing. Yeah. In general, what I was doing is like once I start getting data, then wait a certain amount of time. And then, you know, and sometimes, you know, there'd be a really long wait between when data started to show up, Mm. you know, like some devices, like they have crazy amounts of delay. Like I think Cisco WLCs, like you can start getting into like 50 seconds and stuff like that. But even that started to break down. And eventually I had to say, okay, this trying to do things based on timing based um, in general, it just is not as reliable as pattern searching, you know, searching for something like the trailing prompt is just more reliable. And I, I've had both those mechanisms for a long time, but eventually I realized that, hey, I sort of need to make the main method be this pattern-based one and have the timing for special use cases, um, but not have it be the main mechanism for trying to do the communication. And I see that there's a lot of device support here. So as I'm looking on your GitHub page, uh, well, actually, I guess this kicked me over to PyPy, uh, a PyPy page, talking about NetMiko 1.1. I'm seeing support for uh, Arista's EOS, uh, Cisco ASA, iOS, iOS XR, SG300. I think I have one of those, actually. Comware 7, Procurve on the HP world, uh, Junos and Linux. Yeah, so those are the ones I basically we're going to test with every release because those are the ones I have in my lab test environment. Um, so that's why I've sort of grouped those in the regularly tested bucket. And then there's a set of ones that I think should work reasonably well, but I don't have direct access to test them, so I'm not testing them as regularly. Yeah, I won't list them all off, but uh, yeah, the, yeah. You, the, uh, the operating systems, we got some from Avaya, Brocade, some additional Cisco OSs, uh, there's some Dell Force 10, Huawei, uh, Palo Alto, and Viata. 
And I do hear from a reasonable number of people of, you know, various people using these in production and in their environment in one way or another, you know, across, you know, a pretty large set of vendors. So I'm getting feedback that way as well. Yeah. And people from the community, I assume, would can raise a flag with you if they try something that isn't working out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they do, it sounds like. Yeah. They'll let me know. Sometimes <laughs> okay. more politely than other times. But. Uh, and then I, I see, so you've got regularly tested, limited tested list here, and then experimental, uh, some load balancers, A10 and F5, and then uh, some other uh, less common, uh, commonly used OSs, um, at least in the enterprise space, Alkaloo and Terrasys, uh, Extreme and, uh, and Fortinet. Yeah, and experimental usually means that, you know, someone submitted a driver, I reviewed it, and I thought it looked okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't even know if it passed. You know, I have a set of unit tests to pass on it. I don't even know if it passed those set of unit tests. Um, and I don't really have a good view into what the current status of the driver is. Like, I looked at it, and it looked reasonable, and the code looked reasonable. But um, I don't really know, like, does all the, do all the methods work, what it's how well tested did the person implement it? Things like that. And, and therefore you just rank it as experimental, but at least it, it lets people know, you know there is, and I think it's important for everybody listening here to understand there's pretty broad support for NetMiko for uh, your Python scripts to interact with a number of different device CLIs. So you, you really do have a you know, pretty broad support. Yeah. And even in the experimental ones, I would have generally looked at the code and as long as it looked reasonable, you know, at the time I would have said, okay, but you know, if something I could neither understand or didn't look reasonable, then I would have had to table it and get more information. And that's happened sometimes where I've just had to say, okay, I can't really do this without a device, or I need to look at this later. Um, because it was too much of a departure from sort of the normal pattern. Now, if I'm a Python user, I've got my Python interpreter installed and I want to add NetMiko support. I need to get that library added uh, what's the easiest way to get it installed? Yeah, so that's really easy in Python. You can just do pip install NetMiko, mm-hmm. and then it'll go grab that from PyP and download and install it and install all its dependencies. And that should generally work for most people at this point. And then it's just including that library in my script so that I uh, I have access to those uh, that command set. Yeah, so then when you're writing your Python script, you would basically just import this library, and then you would call the various NetMiko actions. And I tried to make some... You know, on the README and tutorials, tried to give people enough information so they, they could see the patterns that they needed to use for using a library. I actually read through those tutorials in preparation for recording today, and they're, they're pretty good. If you have you know, a basic Python competency, you can, you know, the, the tutorials show you output from the interpreter uh, directly so that you, you put this in, you put this command in, or you set up the, uh, the device you're calling in this way and run this, and here's the output that you can expect. So it's really straightforward uh, to, to get a handle on this stuff. Yeah, and then I've tried to recently just try, I've tried to add some CLI tools, which I, I've been finding really useful. Um, I haven't really got as much interest from the community on them, but basically I made some Linux CLI tools that let you do things like execute show commands from the CLI, you know, and it could be on one device or 20 devices, execute show commands and do pattern searching, basically like using grep, you know, once again on one device, 20 device, 100 devices. So just to, to clarify here, you mean I, I don't have to be in the Python interpreter to use these tools? They're just Linux CLI tools? 
Yeah, totally. Uh, you have to define your devices and you define your devices in YAML, which is sort of a structured way of defining things. It sort of looks like INI definitions, um, mm-hmm. but it's pretty easy. And once you have your devices defined, you know, there's a special file they need to be in. I think it's like .netmico.yml. Then you can take these actions. And for example, the first one I wrote was netmico grep, which by default is going to look at running config. So say you had 20 Cisco devices, you could do a netmico grep for some pattern in the running config of the 20 Cisco devices. And then it would get you that output back and say wherever it encountered that pattern. So do these tools actually rely on Python or did you uh, like compile, uh, do a, a compiled Python to generate some kind of a binary? No, it's bound to Python. So it would really only work on, I mean, you have to have Python on the box. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't work on Windows. It would probably, probably possibly work on Mac OS, but I haven't tested it. Mm. But I'm definitely using them on Linux and I find them really helpful. There's also like a NetMeco config. So you, with a CLI, you can basically make a one-line config change, and you can also do like a you can have a file and have it read a file. So if you had multiple config changes, you could just basically say netmeco config read this file, and then it'll go execute that set of config changes. Cool. So netmeco is maturing. It's as you put it, 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 it's using legacy CLI to get done what it, it needs to because on a lot of devices, there's not an API that's there. I mean, so you, do you see NetMeco and these sorts of techniques as, as transitional over the next few years while APIs become more prevalent? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, sort of back to our earlier discussion, you know, this is really a legacy way of doing it. This is for the interim with when these kind of devices still exist, you know, in a large quantity. And then across time, I think the trend is clearly there's going to be programmatic interfaces into the devices, and then these will start to fade away. Now, you know, technical change takes a long time. So there's going to be a lot of these legacy devices in the field for a long time. But I think it clearly is going to get transitioned out across time. Now, something else we mentioned earlier was structured versus unstructured data, and that the data we're working with with a tool like NetMeco is uh, is actually unstructured data that's coming back from the device, because it's actually what was on the screen, and therefore we got to scrape that output and, uh, and turn it into something that's uh, usable within the script. On the other hand, from an API, we would get back uh, structured data, very often given back to us in JSON format. Can you highlight, uh, just for someone who's maybe unfamiliar, what structured data is and why that's such a big deal? Yeah, so what I mean by that is, you know, we talked earlier about unstructured data, which just comes back as a big block of text. And structured data would usually come back as a set of lists and dictionaries. And you might also know of dictionaries as hashes, but some sort of key value pairing. So the advantage of having structured data is you don't have to get into all this string parsing where you're looking for patterns in the output. You can just start looking for, you know, the keys. So for example, if you're looking at BGP, maybe you're just grabbing the BGP neighbors and getting different attributes relevant to those BGP neighbors. So it just makes the extracting what you want a lot easier and a lot more reliable in general. Yeah, because you can take that value that comes back and assign it directly to a variable and then do something with it or store it in an array or a database, whatever you need, and, uh, and then act on it without, as you said, all the string parsing. 
Yeah. And it is Greg, I think Greg alluded to this earlier, but you know, when you're doing string parsing, you're looking for patterns in that output and if those patterns change, or if you didn't make your pattern searching robust enough, then your string parsing is going to break. So, you know, you're sort of strapping everything together somewhat with duct tape anyways, because, right, you're looking for patterns in these output and you're counting on them not changing. Mm. It reminds me of what I did in basic on my Commodore 64 as a kid, string land 64, and you just making all these calls on this string of data. And it's exactly right. It's a house of cards. As soon as the format of that data you're working with changes, you're screwed. So, right. <laughs> Structured data is a wonderful thing, which which is a good transition into Napalm. Um, now, Napalm isn't isn't your project, but it's a project that you've been uh, contributing to. Can you give us a little background on what Napalm is? Yeah, so Napalm was a project originally created by David Barrasso and Eliza Jasinska. I'm going to mispronounce her name, but so they originally created it, I think, probably in 2015, mm-hmm. and. Right now, you know, it's definitely a pretty active project. Mircho Olinich is also very active on it. Um, I work quite a bit on it. So there's a lot going on. And I think they've done some really interesting, um, good things there. So I definitely like it. And I think it's a very good project for people to use and to be on people's radar. Yeah, and it's uh, it's Napalm is actually an acronym in this case, Network Automation and Programmability Abstraction Layer with Multi-Vendor Support. Booyah. So uh, what what does it do for us? Yeah, I think uh, I think David probably reverse engineered his um, abstraction there. I think he wanted something involving fire and probably the CLI <laughs> on fire, and then he had to reverse engineer something that fit into that. So <laughs> yeah, so there's really two main categories there. There's one category that concerns um, config operations, and I really like what they've done with uh, config operations. So with config, you basically have a standard set of methods across a bunch of platforms. So platforms like iOS XR, Arista EOS, Junos, iOS, Nexus. And what you can do is basically do things like load a full configuration. So you could load a configuration onto you know, a candidate config, if it supports it, or if it can sort of be made to support it in some way, then you can compare the config to the current thing that's there. You can decide if you're going to commit it or not. You can decide if you're going to discard it. You can also do partial configs and do something that's more like a merge operation, but it gives you sort of all knobs that you can turn for doing these config operations, um, generally sort of on a file or partial file um, perspective. But but it is device independent. I mean, you cited several different operating systems, most of which I've used, and they're, the way you would achieve config changes, et cetera, the, the commands, and if you're talking about Junos uh, at the CLI, would be radically different um, from one CLI to another. So it... Napalm normalizes that for me so that one set of commands will accomplish it across all of those platforms? Yep. Yeah, so definitely. So I did most of the work on the Napalm iOS driver because I was using NetMiko there to make that happen. So I know more in depth about that one, although I'm reasonably familiar with a lot of the other main platforms as well now. But like in the case of iOS, what I did to sort of... um add on a what looks like a commit mechanism onto it is basically I did SCP file transfers, either of a full config file onto the file system in the case of a config replace, 
or of a partial config file in the case of a, mer of a merge. But I basically do an SCP operation, and then I either do a configure replace, or I do basically a merge of the file into the running config. Ah, okay. So this is, again, this takes us a level higher where I'm not so worried about having to screen scrape my, at this point myself as the coder, because Napalm is, is as its name implies, programmability abstraction layer. A lot of that grunt work is abstracted for me because like you contributed to the iOS component and you're doing uh, SCP secure uh, copy for that. You, you handle that or Napalm handles that for me. Yep, exactly. Now, you know, I was obviously mentioning a legacy device. So on platforms like Arista and Junos, that would be, those would be much cleaner because they have a much nicer, i.e. true commit mechanism. So I sort of had to band-aid that on in iOS. But the general thing is when you're writing your code, you can basically have the same calls in the code, regardless of whether it's a Junos device or an Arista device or a Cisco device. Now, the particulars of the values you provide might be different, but your methods you're calling are going to be the same. Meaning you can write, uh, write that code and, and then reuse it much more capably, uh, which, is, which is good for you as a coder. Make sure, as you say, passing variables into the method might be unique from device to device, but you, your raw code is uh, largely going to be the same. Yeah, so you probably don't have to have as much blue logic in your code where you're trying to figure out, oh, is this a Cisco device? Okay, I need to do this. Or is this an Arista device? Okay, I need to do this different thing that you can make some of that easier. It also makes it easier to layer on top of other tool or layer other two tools on top of Napalm. So for example, there's Napalm Ansible libraries where you can use um, Ansible with Napalm. And there's Napalm Salt libraries where you can use an or um, napalm with salt so having that common interface makes it easier to add this additional tooling on top of napalm because you would use as the end user ansible let's say and have a playbook that references napalm napalm's doing an amount of abstraction and normalization that makes writing a playbook uh easier and leveraging uh, ansible across devices a, a bit easier yeah, so you don't have to have a bunch of logic inside your Ansible playbook to say, oh, for Arista, do this, for Cisco, do this other thing, for Junos, do this other thing. That Just you know, talk to it, Napalm. Yeah, it just makes it easier that it's yeah. sort of a common interface where you could potentially have basically the same thing and independent of the device. So is, does Napalm have its own APIs then? How, does, uh, how would Ansible or Salt interact with Napalm? Well, in the case of Ansible, so Ansible generally, although you don't have to do it this way, you write Ansible modules in Python. So when you're writing the Ansible module, and this is open source as well, but you basically import the Napalm library, you know, pass the, you know, from the Ansible level, you pass in the arguments that you put in your Ansible script, basically, and you just pass them to this underlying library. It does all the work, it returns that to, you know, the Ansible module, and then Ansible module returns it to you. So it's just another layer that's accomplishing the work, you know, down lower. <laughs> I love it. All these transitional tools, but uh, but it's taking us somewhere, and that's that's it's helping us get done today some network automation on uh, on equipment that, as you said, doesn't have an API or that we really want things to be the same uh, across platforms. Um, now, as an abstraction layer, Napalm 
reminds me a bit of the open config project which is building models to normalize some pretty you know fundamental rudimentary tasks that we do in networking and give us a model that uh, allows a standard way to express those common tasks there's a model for bgp and a model for ospf and uh, a model for telemetry and so on uh, is napalm and open config related in any way that you know of well, I know that uh, I know David Barrasso is working on experimental Yang open config support. So I know he's working there. I think he might be do, trying to do it on Arista EOS. I'm not exactly sure on which platform he's trying to do the um, experimental support on, but I know he's working quite a bit on that and trying to sort of get at least a proof of concept of using basically the yang open config models so that's how things are represented and then using napalm in some way to transport those and provide those to the device and then somehow getting those loaded onto the device now we've mentioned open source so netmiko and napalm are both uh exactly that free and open source and Mm -hmm. uh what is what is asked of the user community who um who use these tools yeah, so I'd need to check the Napalm license. It's probably Apache 2, um, which is just the open source license is using um, NetMiko's MIT license. So they're all open source. I mean, I think they're, you know, with open source, I think there is a certain amount of, you have to understand people are doing this free. So I think people sometimes um, can get the mentality of, you need to fix my problem. Um <laughs> When it's, no, I don't need to fix your problem. And <laughs> I sometimes have an inverse reaction to people that are really belligerent that I need to fix their problem. Um, you know, that it's a it's problem on both sides, isn't it? It's one of those open source challenges. People expect it to, they think, you know, they get stuck in that, I've got a problem now, I haven't fixing it. And they commit to the boss that I'm using this open source software and I'm saving money, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it doesn't work. And then they realize, oh, I have to make it work. Yeah, I mean, there's there can be that. I mean, I think there's just the realization of what you're using. Um, and you need to just with any software, you need to have proper procedures and how you're using it. So you need to test it in your environment in a reasonable way. You need to test changes in a reasonable way. Um, you know, they're looking for more people that are contributing. Obviously, that takes a certain amount of programming skills to be doing that. So, um, but even getting feedback on issues that you're counting encountering that's useful because it's giving you more data about you know using it in different contexts and different environments and that sort of bakes in you know value in it because it gets used across a broader set of things Mm. it's it's one of those things you you, if you take open source software it's up to you to solve all the problems um Uh, i wouldn't say that well sorry what i'm saying is there's not just you know getting it running it's also operational and backing it up and you know, there's often a certain amount of you know, things that you need to do yourself, which you're expected to know. You're expected to have some skill level quite often to make things work. Yeah, I would definitely say it's it's definitely more of a do-it-yourself. And I think you need to have probably less of the mentality of, you know, someone's going to solve my problems for me and more I need to have more responsibility. Now, that all being said, I would expect that probably the mean time to fix an issue on Napalm is probably a lot quicker than the meantime to fix an issue on most of your vendor platforms that you're spending a lot of money on, Hmm. you know, so especially for important issues and you can, you know, get into granularity about, you know, what's important, what's not, but 
I mean, it's a real active community and there's stuff going on all the time. Like earlier today, Merchow and I were working on trying to improve the NXOS driver for Napalm and fixing some issues that we're running into there. And, you know, we had a big hackathon, which, you know, had 20 people on it, you know, contributing in early in September. So there's, there's definitely quite a bit going on on it. Mm-hmm. And it is an active community. Kirk, you mentioned earlier uh, some specialized tools that you'd written based on NetMiko that would run well on Linux, maybe on Mac and probably not on Windows. But as far as Napalm and NetMiko themselves, uh, is there a platform uh, preference or any any reason as long as I've got a working Python interpreter, I would have any trouble with NetMiko or Napalm? Yeah, so with I know more about this on NetMiko. So in NetMiko, yeah, it should definitely work on Windows, uh, Mac OS, and Linux. The Windows installation, installation used to be a little bit cumbersome for various reasons but in recent uh days maybe in the last recent probably last year it's got easier and that's mainly due to an underlying library that i use basically some of the cryptography stuff was harder to install on windows and they've made it easier so that installation process on windows should now be very smooth like i oh maybe a month ago i started up a windows server 2012 and just did a test install on it just to see okay how is this nowadays because i knew they had changed the install process and it was very easy to get working and installed kirk you teach network engineers you teach them about python you talked about ansible etc how much interest are you seeing in this yeah so i'm definitely seeing a lot of interest in network automation in general and i don't think this is really surprising you know while I'd probably say I think the original idea of SDN was probably misguided, I think the interest of you know program programmability of the network totally made sense, um, and it's actually probably crazy that we're still talking about screen scraping in 2016. That we probably should have had APIs, you know, 10 years ago or something. It does um, make us sad. Makes <laughs> you know, wah wah wah. But I mean, it is that you know, people still. I I was I can remember. Uh, working with a company a couple of years ago and they have routers in their network that are over 15 years old. And I'm not talking about one or two, I'm talking about more than 50% of their WAN. Yeah, no, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's sort of what I talked about earlier when we were talking about, you know, these legacy devices are going to be here for a long time. They're not going to just magically go, you know, go away in two years. I don't know. I actually think you know, it's possible, you know, SD-WAN might give people a reason to get rid of the old stuff. And there are things happening that might replace where we are. You know? Yeah, just, I don't know, tech stuff takes a long time to go away. Like, how long did the ISOBUS or the floppy drive, <laughs> those things just took forever yeah. to get rid of. Um, I do sometimes wonder if smartphones and iPads and, you know, this idea of consumable phones, you know, three-year life cycle might help. But anyway, that's a different topic. But back on sort of the general, like I'm definitely, you know, I run this free Python course. I'm definitely seeing lots and lots of network engineers that are really interested in that. Now that's free. So there's obviously it's really easy for, you know, it's a very low bar for people to at least sign up. But I do see a lot of interest in, you know, various other channels. It just seems like the interest is growing really rapidly in the network automation space. And what, what uh, based on your experience with the network engineers you've been teaching, do you have any other observations or comments you maybe want to make to network engineers that are trying to get into this area? Yeah, so definitely I see certain, there's certain patterns that I start to see. So one 
pattern that I see is that I think network engineers can get pretty good at what I'll call scripting, where they have everything in one program and they accomplish a specific task. But they really um, sometimes can struggle with how to sort of build reusable components that they can use not only in one script, but in a whole set of programs and potentially taking advantage of the things that are in the language they're using, whether that's Python or some other language, but learning how to take advantage of the things that are in their language to uh, start to build those things. And there's a really big power in that, in that you just basically have these building blocks that you can reuse so that getting things done is much, much quicker and much, much easier because you don't have to either reinvent the wheel or try to copy code and glue it together. You can just basically start using it directly. Build Lego blocks. Yeah. And it's, it's really powerful. It's just your time to getting things done just starts to go way, way down. Yeah, I've seen, this is interesting, I've seen some code that seems very elegant because all it, all it is is the main code just calls a bunch of other modules. There's very little code itself. It just calls uh, other modules that do things. And then you can uh, assemble a script that does things much better if you've built all these Lego blocks that you can use to uh, assemble your script along the way. But I, I know exactly what you're saying because it's very easy to just write this one long procedure that does what you need, but it's very hard to reuse that code without the, the ugly copy paste into your next uh, your next code but if you don't understand the programming language and the capabilities it gives you there then uh, then, then you don't know and so you just kind of club away as uh, as best you can yeah definitely and in what you said there there's some interesting ideas too with you know how you write things because you can you can definitely write code such that you make it so that it really can only be used for this one particular thing and it can't really ever be used anywhere else Whereas that same thing, you could maybe break it out into parts, like say if you're looking at a SSH login to a device and then doing something on the device, you know, there's certain patterns of you're going to have to do this every time and that you could build those components to make them reusable. So there's also sort of an art on, you know, art learning you have to do on how do I even construct my code to make things that are reusable? And that's definitely something that I think it takes a certain amount of doing it across time. And there's certainly things you can learn, but there's a certain amount of just doing it across time where you start to see these patterns. Which, which doesn't mean don't club your way through it to get started, but you know, know that that um, clean and elegant programming is an art all its own. And uh, once you get into, if Python's your first scripting language, your first programming language of any sort, you, you can find all kinds of examples to get something working, but that's your version 0.1, and then as you learn the capabilities of the language, you can make it uh, much more streamlined and capable as you go along. Um, yeah, but- so by all means, club your way through it and get something working. That's like job one. Get something that works and get a win out of it, and maybe you don't even come back to that code, but you take learning for the next one. And then across time, you'll start to see that, oh... Well, if I would have written this original program slightly differently, I could have had these things I could have reused, and you'll start to build on that. But by all means, day one, just get something that works and get something accomplished. So th- let me ask you a question about databases. I mean, if I, uh, you know, I'm been, got some little programming projects, and a part of that would be s- stashing historical data. I would have used a SQL database back in the day. Should I still, or is this no SQL trend something I should be looking at? And 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 what would you recommend, not just to me, but to any network engineer out there? Yeah. So on the SQL side, 
what I always do is I, I have zero, less than zero interest in doing any SQL statements. Um, so Python provides nice um, interfaces to databases so that it basically makes the database interaction feel like more normal Python code. So as opposed to having, you know, to do any select whatever, a select star from whatever, you just basically interface to um, the database through this middle layer, and it'll be, it'll call it an ORM, so an object relational mapper, but basically this interface into the database, and it makes it so much easier and in general so much better. So that's what I'm generally, you know, doing and trying to teach people also just to, you know, at a certain level, you can store things at a file, but that pretty quickly starts to break down because trying to read and then update and delete things from the file, it's just like, well, this is really what a database was created for. Mm-hmm. And trying to do that in a file is not very pleasant. <laughs> so will, will, will people laugh at me if I use MySQL, MySQL, or uh, should I, should I be using something more modern? Um. You know, I haven't got too much into the NoSQL stuff. I'm probably going to just experiment with some of that stuff today. Um, so I end up using a lot of cases just an SQL database. And in some cases, it's really easy just to use SQL Lite 3, like if you have a really small database, which is just a, mm. a database on a file. You know, I don't really want to set up, you know, if I'm just going to store a relatively small amount of information that I don't need um, MySQL or Postgres on, then it's not really worth it to me to do the sysadmin overhead to try to maintain those things. So then I just have been putting in into a file based SQL database. Mm. I may end up doing that. It's what I'm familiar with and seems not inappropriate for the kind of stuff I want to do. Most of the NoSQL stuff seems like it was created for speed at web scale. So you can do massive queries without being bound to a traditional structured database. So it seems like maybe it would be overkill for a small application. Um, but still, I've thought maybe it's worth poking at or uh, or just because all the cool kids are doing it. Maybe that's what I should do, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean... The- the performance for the things I've been doing just hasn't really mattered. So exactly. in one thing I used MySQL and another thing I just use SQL Lite 3. The main thing I'm trying to teach people in my class is just getting them familiar with this, how to use this programmatic interface so they don't think they have to use, you know, have to know about um, how to manually do SQL or how to manually maintain their database that they have a much easier way of actually storing information in a database. What else could, would you recommend for someone who's uh, writing scripts and just kind of used to doing things and maybe a text editor testing at the command line? But if as soon as you start tapping into DevOps, you hear about all these other processes related to development that are maybe a little foreign, uh, unit tests, et cetera. Is that the kind of thing network engineers should be getting into as well? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think as we get more into network automation, now there's the question of who's doing this and who in teams are, you know, what role they're fulfilling and how your team is structured. But as we get into automating more and more things in the network, I think this tooling around this and the testing around it is going to get more and more important. And, you know, I still think it's very early in this uh, area, but you know, definitely you need to start thinking about how do you do unit, you know, how do you test your code, both sort of unit tests, like small components of your code, and also more 
you know, did the change do what I want? Did the behavior accomplish what I want more at the network device um, and your environment level? And this also relates to like, how do you create virtual devices? Do you have virtual devices available for your platform? You know, how much coverage can you get in what you're doing? And this whole process workflow, I think, is areas, you know, that in network automation that, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done and it's still pretty early on. Well, Kirk, I think uh, there's there's a lot there to chew on. Um, and again, for folks just wanting to get started with some kind of network automation, Python's free. If you're sitting at uh, at OSX on your Mac, um, you've probably got an interpreter there already. Uh, or, or if not, it's very easy to install. Same thing with Linux and Windows. You can get Python interpreters uh, pretty easy. Uh, Kirk, does it matter much if someone is facing Python for the first time and they have to choose between version 2 or version 3? Is there a, a big uh, preference one way or the other? You know, I, I'll probably get slammed for this, but I'm still recommending Python 2 to people. So for people that aren't familiar with it, Python's undergoing a transition that I think is fairly analogous to IPv4, IPv6, that there's basically an incompatible version or a largely incompatible version of Python. And you can have to do things to make it work with both versions and make it accommodate both versions. So as a new person, you have this question, which Python should I use? Um, And my take on it has been for network engineers, you need to choose the one that's most productive for you on day one, like that you can get the most accomplished um, and get wins out of what you're doing. And I still think mainly due to library support that Python 2 is the better choice at this time. Now, the gap is definitely closing. So potentially like in 18 months or so that they could be close enough to app parity that you might be able to easily do either one but i think right now you'll probably run into more headaches if you try to use python 3 than if you use python 2 and kirk you have a blog and a mailing list and twitter can you tell folks about all those places that they can uh, stay in touch with you and anything else you'd like to mention yeah so my main blog you'll be able to find it if you search for python for network engineers sort of the main thing that i do there um with the communities i run a free python course um i try to run it about basically once a quarter, one's just kicking off now, and right now it's late October, but it's just kicking off now. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Kirk Byers, and then you can also find me on GitHub for the NetMiko project. And you've got a uh, network automation meetup group in the San Francisco area? Yeah, um, but the the frequency of it hasn't been very good. I've definitely <laughs> been uh, a bit uh, lax on that, so it might at this point be um, like um, in a defunct status. I'm still paying yeah. Meetup their money, though, so I'm still um, still costing me something. I'm part of a Meetup group for Boston Network Operators Group, and our meetings are kind of that way. It's like, oh, gosh, we haven't done one for a while. We really should do one. And it's just oh, another thing to organize and get going. So, yeah, I, I feel your pain there. Um, there's also a Network to Code Slack channel, I believe. Um, that's yeah. Jason Edelman's group. And uh, are you around there? Yeah, and I definitely think that's sort of the best, you know, interactive community for network automation there's a lot of really good people in there there's a lot of sub channels you know there's a sub channel for netmiko there's sub channels for napalm there's sub channels for ansible 
you know, Cisco, Arista. So that's a really active and really good community. So if you're interested in network automation, that's definitely something worth participating in. Yeah, I lurk on that uh, Slack channel uh, occasionally, and I I think there's over a thousand people in it now, something like that. I was really surprised. And yes, all, all the different channels are there when a lot of interesting folks taking part, solving problems, and trying to figure out uh, just how to get things done in this uh, new world of autom- network automation. So, And that's also like, you know, coming back to like, well, how do you get help or how do you solve issues that you're having? Like, you know, the Napalm channel, people help out there all the time. The NetMeco channel, people help out there all the time. So, you know, that's a really good forum for how do you get help on those issues? Similarly, like, you know, with NetMeco and Napalm, you can post issues to their forum um, if you're having problems and people will get back to you on those as well. So those can be other ways that you're trying to do something and it's not working and how do you get feedback on And again, that was the Network to Code Slack channel uh, that we were talking about, in addition to those uh, forums that uh, Kirk was just mentioning there. And that's going to wrap up our show for today. So thanks very much for listening to Packet Pushers and the Priority Q channel. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook. And if you would, please rate us on iTunes. It does help us when those iTunes rankings and ratings go up. Last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.